A New York Times investigation reveals behind-the-scenes workings of the Supreme Court that led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, one finding that conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett opposed even taking up the case. It's Friday, December 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Prince Harry wins his landmark case against a British tabloid group. The court found the Daily Mirror and other publications hacked into his cell phone for years to learn and write about details of his private life. The best scoop that you could have in those times was something about the royal family. Princess Diana was the golden goose, but her sons also were very good for business. And we'll look at the debate in the EU as leaders vote to begin membership negotiations with Ukraine. Plus, one show is breaking out of the dad TV mold. It's 4.01. The news is first. In Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Israeli military says its troops mistakenly killed three hostages during combat with Hamas militants in Gaza today. Officials say the families have been notified. On CNN this afternoon, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Conrique, spokesperson for Israeli Defense Forces, said the loss will be investigated but will not affect the IDF's overall campaign to eliminate Hamas. Even a sad event like this will not shake our resolve and it will not divert us from the focus, which is clear, to dismantle Hamas. Civilian toll in Gaza also includes many thousands of Palestinians, spurring more international concern over the scope of Israel's operations in Gaza since Hamas militants attacked southern Israel in October. That's underscored by new revelations about so-called dumb bombs dropped on the Palestinian territory. NPR's confirmed they make up almost half of the roughly 30,000 bombs dropped by Israeli aircraft in Gaza, according to a new U.S. intelligence estimate first reported by CNN. We have more from NPR's Tom Bowman. Dumb bombs are unguided, meaning they can't hit a target precisely. Human rights groups say their use could explain the high number of Palestinian civilian deaths in Gaza. The death toll in Gaza is nearing 20,000, and most of those are women and children. A U.S. official, however, noted that Israeli pilots are flying low and slow before releasing the dumb bombs in order to carefully hit targets and lower civilian deaths. The official and others are uncertain why Israel is resorting to so many dumb bombs, noting they may be running out of precision bombs. Tom Bowman, NPR News. The U.S. government is out with its latest snapshot of the number of people in the United States who are unhoused. The report compares January 2023 to a year earlier. As NPR's Jennifer Ludden tells us, the annual count reveals more than 650,000 people were living in tents, vehicles, or shelters. That number is a 12 percent jump from a year earlier, but it's not a surprise. Last year, much of the pandemic aid that helped keep people housed ran out. Inflation spiked and median rent hit a record high. Anne Oliva of the National Alliance to End Homelessness says that left many more people cash-strapped. They are paying much more of their income towards rent than ever before, and that is a driving factor of homelessness. Much of the increase was those who lost housing for the first time, with a big jump among families and also Hispanic people. A quarter of those unhoused are seniors. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Washington. In a landmark ruling, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights finds that the Guatemalan government violated indigenous rights when it allowed a major nickel mine on tribal land nearly 20 years ago. The issues among several indigenous rights activists have been fighting for decades. From Washington, this is NPR News.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. A federal court judge in Boston is considering whether the city of Boston will be held responsible for a fatal police shooting in 2016. The judge said he'll determine whether to find the city in default in a lawsuit over the shooting of Terrence Coleman. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Federal Judge Mark Wolf chided the city over its delays in providing documents in the suit filed by Coleman's mother, Hope Coleman. The suit alleges the city did not properly train officers to respond to mental health crises like her son's schizophrenia. City attorneys admitted there have been delays in producing documents. They also pointed to an investigation that found the shooting was justified, in part because Coleman allegedly lunged at EMTs with a knife. Attorney Leonard Keston represents the two officers. They were authorized to shoot him as soon as they came through the door and they saw him trying to kill the EMTs. At the hearing, Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox said the city is working to provide all the documents requested. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The funeral for Waltham police officer Paul Tracy was held today. Tracy was killed last week along with National Grid worker Roderick Jackson when a driver of a pickup truck crashed into a work site. Jim Tracy delivered the eulogy at his brother's funeral today. Today we say goodbye to Paul, but we will never let him go. He will no longer be with us, but he will live in our hearts forever, and Paul will never be forgotten. Roderick Jackson's funeral is tomorrow. The driver accused of killing the two men continues to be held without bail. The U.S. Department of Transportation is awarding more than $17 million to 11 Massachusetts communities to reduce crashes and traffic-related injuries and deaths. Cities and towns can use the money on projects including crosswalks and bicycle lanes. While tonight's skies will be mostly clear, temperatures will drop to the upper 30s. It'll be mostly sunny tomorrow with pretty pleasant temperatures for mid-December, upper 40s. Sunday will hit the mid-50s with cloudy skies. We could see rain by afternoon. Then it looks really rainy for Monday and windy. It'll be warm around 60 degrees. It's 55 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career, with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Supreme Court is notoriously secretive, so it's shocking to read the sheer number of disclosures in a New York Times story today about the process leading up to the decision reversing Roe v. Wade. Here are just a few of the revelations. Only four of the nine justices voted to hear the case. Liberal Justice Stephen Breyer nearly voted to dramatically restrict abortion in hopes of avoiding a more sweeping decision that overturned Roe. And conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch spent just 10 minutes reviewing a 98-page draft opinion before signing on with no changes. Jody Cantor reported this piece along with her colleague Adam Liptak. Welcome back to All Things Considered, Jody. Thank you, Ari. Let's start with the court's decision to take this case. You reveal there was an unexpected reversal. By whom? By Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the newest member of the court, she arrived at the court, as you remember, right after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the fall of 2020. And almost immediately, she's confronted with this decision, you know, is the court going to take uh, what looks like a potentially important abortion case? And in an early vote in January of 2021, she was a G, a grant, meaning she wanted to go ahead. 
And then a few months later, she changed her mind and became a deny. And we know a little bit about her early reasoning. We don't know the full explanation. We know that back in January, she was concerned about timing, about being very new on the court, and there just having been a change in the composition of the court. But the result is the justices who decided to take this were A, a minority of the court, only four of the nine, and B, all men. So as you know, the Supreme Court has its own particular math. And part of it is that, yes, it only takes four justices to greenlight a case. So in that scenario, every vote is essential. They have the bare minimum. As you said, it was all men. They overrode the concerns of all the women on the court who were from a variety of backgrounds, had a variety of concerns. And part of what's interesting is that it's Justice Kavanaugh who provided the last vote. Let's jump ahead to after the justices have heard oral arguments as the court is deciding how to rule. You reveal that Chief Justice John Roberts was talking with Justice Stephen Breyer, a conservative and a liberal, about a potential compromise. What would that have looked like? So we know from the chief's public statements that what he favored was a 15-week compromise. That's what the Mississippi law was trying to do, to limit abortions to 15 weeks. And that rule is pretty accepted around the world, right? It, it, you know, lots of democracies limit abortion to about that time period. So basically, the chief justice wanted to say yes to Mississippi's 15-week law, but he wanted to say no to overturning all of Roe, meaning if you want to have an abortion before 15 weeks, okay. Months before the decision was issued, there was a shocking leak. Politico published Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. How did that undercut the attempt to reach a compromise that Chief Justice John Roberts had been working on with Justice Stephen Breyer? It's such an important question because, listen, we don't know who leaked this. We um, don't know the exact motive of the person who did it. But we can now say it's a fact, which is the leak rendered those compromise efforts hopeless. There was, I mean... It locked people into positions that might otherwise have been tentative. Exactly. Because the reason why these votes are secret until they're announced are because justices do sometimes change their positions. But once this opinion was out there, it became very difficult to do so. You know, the court investigated the source of the leaked opinion, and we still don't know where it came from. But in your article today, you write that you viewed documents and notes and conducted interviews with more than a dozen people from the court, which I find almost as shocking as the revelations themselves. It suggests the Supreme Court does not have just one leaker. The place is a sieve. I think the best way to answer your question, Ari, is to see that my job as an investigative reporter is to build people's confidence in telling the truth and to find safe pathways for them to share information that's in the public interest. And a lot of investigative journalism is about taking stories that people think or assume are untellable and finding ways to bring them into public view. And yet it's hard for me to imagine that somebody trying to tell this story would have gotten people at the court to speak in this candid way even a few years ago. To me, it feels reading this story like it is evidence of how much the tenor and culture and trust at the court has dramatically changed. Maybe, maybe not. There's a long tradition of great books and articles about the Supreme Court. And especially, you know, after a really big case is decided, 
um, of, of trying to understand, you know, how it happened because this institution has so much power. It's just mind boggling to think that these nine people have so much authority over the rest of us. I want to end by looking ahead because this week the Supreme Court announced that it will decide a case on access to a commonly used abortion pill, mefepristone. And this is the first major abortion-related case that they've taken since overturning Roe. So what do you think the findings of your investigation and the fact that this investigation is now out there suggest about how this next case might be decided? Well, I think the headline there is that in his opinion in Dobbs, Justice Alito said that the court was washing its hands of abortion decisions, that it was stepping away from the debate. And we see that that is just not so. These abortion pills are now the most common method for terminating pregnancies. And so not long after Dobbs, we see once again that these questions of life and choice are back in the justices' hands. That's Jody Cantor. Her story with Adam Liptak for The New York Times is headlined behind the scenes at the dismantling of Roe versus Wade. Thank you so much. Thank you. A small group of senators, White House officials, and leadership aides are trying to craft a bipartisan bill to address the sharp increase in migrants coming across the U.S.-Mexico border. Republicans say they cannot support aid for Ukraine and Israel unless there's a deal on the border. That deal is far from done, but the talks are already raising red flags in the House. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. House members aren't in the border talks happening in Washington. No one has seen a bill. But already, the proposals on the table are drawing ire from conservatives like South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman. Watered down nothing. Watered down nothing. And progressives like Washington Democrat Pramila Jayapal. And they're cruel and inhumane. Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, says linking border changes to money for Ukraine amounts to a ransom demand. And progressive critics say some of the proposals like further restricting entry at the border and making it harder for migrants to claim asylum, amount to reinstating Trump administration policies. You know, I just think it's unfortunate that we constantly do this, where we buy into and try to out-Republican Republicans. It's never worked. The enforcement-only strategy does not work. On the other side, House conservatives say they won't support anything less than the border security bill that passed earlier this year, with zero Democrats voting for it. Here's Florida Republican Byron Donalds. The House's position is clear. H.R. 2. We've passed it. We've had overwhelming support for it. That package includes provisions to build a border wall, step up enforcement to return migrants to home countries, and significantly restrict who qualifies for asylum. Donalds is skeptical of any deal coming out of the upper chamber. I've seen deals in this town that were negotiated amongst senators. They typically are not good deals, they are face-saving deals. Norman shares that sentiment. We'll look at it, but the devil's in the details, but what else has the Senate done that's meaningful? Nothing. Jayapal says half of House progressives would oppose the framework emerging from the Senate and says with House Republicans taking a hard line, she's not sure how it could pass. I don't know who is going to be the coalition of the willing here because Republicans want H.R. 2 and nothing less. One Republican lawmaker who is open to compromise is John Duarte. He says one way to get a deal would be pairing the conservative House border bill with protections for undocumented people who came to the U.S. as children under the Obama-era policy known as DACA. Well, we need enough Republican colleagues that want a secure border 
and can live with a DACA fix. And we need enough Democrats that want a DACA fix and can live with a secure border. Scott Peters, a Democrat who represents the San Diego area, says he knows there is a sense there that immigration is out of control. We can manage it better, and to the extent that that requires resources, I think Democrats can be supportive of that. Tennessee Republican Tim Burchett thinks more resources to process migrants won't solve the problem. He was one of the eight Republicans who ousted former Speaker McCarthy. Asked if Speaker Mike Johnson should bring up a compromise from the Senate for a vote in the House, he says, I just think that'd be a bad decision. We need a physical barrier there. We don't need more lawyers. That's what's gotten us into trouble. Every lawyer's looking for some way to get their client in this country illegally. This is not the first time President Biden has angered the left with his immigration policies. Jayapal says the coalition that elected Biden in 2020, young people, black and brown voters and immigrants, could dissolve in 2024. Throwing immigrants under the bus, which I've seen happen over and over again, is not a good election strategy because all you do, you don't bring Republicans over to you. Um, you, it, it, you just lose your base. And House members left Washington for the holiday break. But as senators continue to discuss some kind of middle ground, it's clear those on the left and the right in the House are in no mood to back it. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your Friday afternoon with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, Prince Harry prevails in a lawsuit against a British, British tabloid group that hacked into his cell phone for years. More than 100 other celebrities joined him in the case against the Mirror Group. We'll have more on today's decision. WBUR supporters include Burton's Grill and Bar. With modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. And MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting Dr. Jordan Peterson on June 5th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. On Wall Street, the Dow closed the week up 0.15 percent. The S&P slipped a hair down 0.01 percent. NASDAQ gained a third of a percent. In local business news, a global life sciences giant is looking to expand its footprint in Massachusetts. Novo Nordisk is leasing a Waltham building that's being converted into lab space. The Boston Business Journal reports the Danish company will lease more than 160,000 square feet of space beginning in 2025. Novo Nordisk also has space in Cambridge, Lexington, and Watertown. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
We'll get down to the upper 30s under mostly clear skies tonight. Tomorrow looks like the pick of the weekend in the upper 40s and mostly sunny, cloudy, and then some rain on Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The internet lit up earlier this week when Oprah Winfrey told People magazine that she's been using a weight loss drug to lose and maintain her weight. The media powerhouse said the drug has been a relief, a redemption, and a gift. Quote, I'm absolutely done with the shaming from other people, and particularly myself. Winfrey is giving voice to what countless people have felt since embracing a class of drugs that were originally approved for diabetes, but are now being widely embraced for weight loss. Weight Watchers, the decades-old weight loss and weight management program, is also embracing these new drugs, which are known as GLP-1s. It is a massive shift for a company that has spent 60 years advising people to count their calories or their points and use willpower. Seema Sistani is the CEO of Weight Watchers, and she joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Juana. This has been incredibly big news for people who have or are struggling with their weight and who have looked to Oprah Winfrey as a source of inspiration. I mean, Oprah's fluctuating weight in her body and the treatment she's received because of it has been a topic of public discussion for as long as I can remember. And Oprah is also the kind of person who clearly does not suffer from a lack of grit and resilience and determination. I want to start by asking you, what example does her latest revelation that she is using these class of medications give people who are struggling with weight loss on their own? Look, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that there has been a decades-long narrative that has painted weight loss as a mere test of willpower, and it's perpetuated this sense of shame and misunderstanding around what it means to live with overweight and obesity. Uh, So for some, different solutions like these new clinical interventions are really needed. At the same time, I mean, listening to Oprah talk about the liberation that she feels, the ability to better manage her weight, to take a dose of one of these drugs before Thanksgiving when you know, like many of us, she's going to have a big dinner. It's a powerful message, but she is also someone who's invested in your company. Do you think that dilutes the power of the message that she's giving to people who are facing similar struggles? Well, look, Ms. Winfrey, along with the rest of our board, stands by our business vision and our program offerings. But we all know that her story has been one that has been a generational story and one that mimics so many people who on a day-to-day basis struggle with the same shame and bias where weight loss has been associated with a preoccupation around thinness. And what we're trying to do is reshape that conversation around weight health. It's not a matter of vanity. This is about the degree to which weight impacts your health and your quality of life. And for decades, we've discussed weight and dieting and obesity in terms that isolate people and often demotivate them. 
So does that mean that the advice that Weight Watchers gave people, including myself, I should note, I'm one of those people who turned to Weight Watchers at various points in my own journey, struggling with my own weight, was the advice that we were given for years about what it takes to lose weight, that focus on determination and resilience and willpower. Was that advice just wrong? Uh, I'm going to say as somebody who was very uh, humbled to take this role because Weight Watchers also worked for me, yes, that advice was wrong because we said it was choice, not chance. And the truth is that this is a chronic condition. And ultimately, for every one person that we helped, that there was one person who our program did not work for because they were dealing with a chronic relapsing condition with biology and genetics and environmental underpinnings. And so in order for us to reintroduce ourselves, we need to acknowledge the part that we had in the past. There are some real questions out there about how much we don't know right now about the long-term effects of medications like Ozempic and Wagovi, examples of the GLP-1s that we've been discussing. How does this program answer and speak to some of those concerns? Well, GLP-1s are not new. The indication for obesity is new, but they have been prescribed for decades for people living with diabetes. Uh, So that gave us a lot of comfort in embracing this clinical pathway. I do want to address the question of access and cost here. Many people can't afford to take these drugs. People talk about spending hundreds, if not more than $1,000 to access prescription drugs like Wagovi and Ozempic if they're not covered by insurance. And I I would imagine then that there are more who can't afford to take these medications indefinitely. Do you worry at all that this sets people who are eager for solutions and eager to lose weight up for long-term frustration? Well, I think you're bringing up a really important cultural conversation, um, which is these medications right now are incredibly expensive and they should be covered. It is criminal, in my opinion, that they aren't covered. Um, and they are put in the same category right now as, you know, medications for hair loss um, and erectile dysfunction. This is a reflection of our healthcare system being based on a disease model versus thinking about preventative measures for weight health. And so we are having that conversation at a policy level as well, so that we can make sure that everyone can have access to support and care that they need. Something I think about a lot that I'd love to get your take on is whether you worry about people out there who might see medications as a quick fix for something that can be so complex and so individual. There are no quick fixes. Even these medications, ultimately, they don't replace lifestyle intervention. And I think the focus that we want is to acknowledge the chronic condition so that we can change the bias in the conversation for what is ultimately a very lonely experience for many. I'd like to ask you a question from one of our editors on the show, if I can. She is someone who has used Weight Watchers successfully at times, less 
successfully at others, to try and maintain a healthy weight and to feel good about herself. And one thing she told me that she has noticed in Weight Watchers social communities since the announcement that you all were going to start offering and allowing folks to have access and helping them get access to these medications is that among some people, there's this sense of betrayal at the company's embrace of these drugs. What do you say to those customers? So um, I understand that, Uh, you know, change is hard and we've, uh, you know, all been a part of the culture and and that narrative. Um, But what I have, um, what I have shared to our team and to our members is that what makes Weight Watchers unique is that so many of us choose to be here because we believe in the mission Um, And we believe in the power of community-driven health. And so that has to come with an unwavering commitment to radical candor. That was Weight Watchers CEO Seema Sistani. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on All Things Considered, do you gently poke fun at so-called dad TV? NPR critic Eric Dagan says the new season of the show Reacher shows the genre can be enjoyed by a wider audience. That's ahead. Well, it's a nice start to the weekend weather-wise. Mainly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Highs will reach the upper 40s. Sunday will be cloudy and in the mid-50s. We might see rain by that afternoon. The wet weather will stick around for Monday. It looks like a washout with temperatures around 60 degrees. Right now it is 55 degrees in Boston with partly cloudy skies. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. Paul Lynch's new novel is set in a police state. As a mother of four feels the government tightening its grip, she must decide to stay or flee. Our career, our children, our relatives, to be forced to leave those things, they have to be unplugged one by one by one by one until you've got nothing left. The Booker Prize winning novel Profit Song, Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Former Trump campaign attorney Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay $148 million to two former Georgia election workers that he spread lies about following the 2020 election. The decision comes at the end of a week-long federal civil trial in Washington where the workers told of how the election conspiracy theories spread by Giuliani and Trump turned their lives upside down. Giuliani was found liable in August for defamation. The Israeli military says its forces mistakenly killed three hostages during combat in Gaza. In a statement, the IDF says it wrongly identified the three as a threat 
and troops fired at them. The families of the hostages have been notified and their bodies have been taken to Israel for examination. A military spokesman says it appears the hostages had escaped or were abandoned by their captors during combat. Congressional forecasters are projecting lower inflation and slightly higher unemployment next year. And Pierre Scott Horsley reports the outlook suggests the U.S. will avoid any near-term recession. The latest forecast from the Congressional Budget Office anticipates somewhat slower economic growth next year with a partial rebound in 2025. Unemployment is projected to rise to about 4.4 percent next year from its current level of 3.7 percent. The U.S. workforce is expected to keep growing at a moderate pace thanks in part to rebounding immigration. The CBO expects inflation to continue moderating next year, falling close to the Federal Reserve's target of 2 percent. The forecast was crafted before this week's Fed meeting, where the central bank also pointed to progress in restoring price stability. The Fed has signaled that it could start cutting interest rates next year. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street in mixed territory by the closing bell. The Dow up 56 points. The Nasdaq was down 52. The S&P 500, or the Nasdaq was up 52. The S&P 500 down a fraction. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Public comments are due today on major changes to Massachusetts' family shelter system. The new rules include a wait list for unhoused families that's already in effect. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports critics are asking the state to rethink the changes. New limits include a cap on shelter population, a wait list, and limiting the length of stay in the shelter system. Kelly Turley with the Massachusetts Coalition for the Homeless is one of several advocates urging state officials to reconsider. Yeah, we encourage them to pause them and withdraw them, even if it's just a pause to have those conversations to see um, you know, what are some alternatives to such draconian measures? A spokesperson for the state says comments will be reviewed, but limited space and funding necessitate changes. It's the first time in 40 years that eligible homeless families are not guaranteed shelter. There are currently 284 families on the wait list. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. The number of new HIV cases among Boston's homeless population has dropped significantly over the last two years. That's after a dramatic uptick in new infections between 2018 and 2021. Dr. Jennifer Brody is director of HIV services at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. She says the encouraging trend is the result of a massive mobilization to test and treat people on the streets, particularly in the area known as Mass and Cass. We also were doing a tremendous amount of overdose response out on Atkinson Street and the surrounding areas. And by providing overdose response, reviving people who were experiencing overdoses, we were able to build a tremendous amount of trust in the community, which enabled us to build relationships and provide treatment and prevention for HIV. Brody says of the approximately 350 people Boston Healthcare for the Homeless cares for who have HIV, 88 percent have undetectable levels of the virus. Boston police are investigating a murder in East Boston. Police say just after 6.30 this morning, a man was reported stabbed on Gove Street. The victim was pronounced dead at the hospital. It's 4.34. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Temperatures will dip to the upper 30s tonight under mostly clear skies, sunny upper 40s tomorrow. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. It has been a rough news week for Ukraine. In Washington, congressional Republicans are still holding up U.S. aid. And in Brussels, Hungary has blocked the European Union from approving a financial package that would send more than $50 billion to Kyiv. After a week of touring international capitals pleading for help, Ukraine's president finally came home with only one small victory, though a significant one. Joining us now from Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, is NPR's Joanna Kakissis. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Joanna, let's just start with this money for Ukraine that the European Union failed to approve. Why is Hungary refusing to sign off? And can just one vote really hold everything up? Yeah. In the European Union, all 27 member states must agree on actions before they're authorized. And in this case, the action involved the EU budget, which includes about 50 billion euros in loans and grants to Ukraine over several years. And Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban refused to support it. He is Russian President Vladimir Putin's closest ally in the EU. And Orban told reporters that he does not want Hungarian taxpayers to support a war that he believes Ukraine can't win. We shouldn't send more money to finance the war. We should stop the war and have peace talks. Instead, they want to give money to keep the war going. And by they, he means the other 26 leaders of European Union member nations, most of whom are very vocal supporters of Ukraine and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And when Orban talks about peace talks, he said this before, the implication is that the Ukrainians should just accept the land that they've lost to Russia in this war and just move on. Now, the Ukrainians did have one significant victory from the summit. It's mm-hmm. that European leaders agreed to open negotiations for the country to join the EU. So why didn't Hungary block this action? So, Juana, it looks like Viktor Orban actually abstained from voting in this case. And uh, in, according to some news reports, he was actually told to leave the room uh, while the other leaders voted on this. Um, Orban said later in a Facebook video that he doesn't think Ukraine is ready for membership and that he left the room because he didn't want to participate in what he calls a bad decision. Now, Orban has threatened for days that he's going to block this. And Zelensky actually tried talking to him earlier this week in Argentina, where they were both attending the new president's inauguration there. The exchange was caught on video and it looked really testy. So a reporter asked Zelensky about it when Zelensky was in Oslo a couple of days ago. He has no any reasons to block Ukrainian membership in EU. And I asked him to tell me one reason. I'm waiting for answer. Now, Orban has said that he has actually not given up on blocking those membership talks in the future. He says, after all, the Hungarian parliament, where his party has all the power, they must also approve it. So, Joanna, what happens next with both these membership talks and also the aid? 
So one, EU membership negotiations often take years, so it's not like Ukraine is going to join the EU tomorrow. Uh, but this was a big symbolic victory for Ukraine. Ukraine has been working very hard on reforming its institutions and fighting corruption in the middle of a war so it can qualify for European Union membership and definitively break from this Russian and Soviet domination that they had in the past. As for the Ukraine aid package, EU leaders say they are going to meet again early next month with the goal of passing it. But at this very moment, Western support, you know, it seems very uncertain. And that's exactly as Russia's President Vladimir Putin predicted. NPR's Joanna Kakesis in Kyiv, thank you. You're welcome. Britain's Prince Harry won a court victory today against some of the tabloid newspapers that have hounded him for much of his life. A London judge says the Duke of Sussex was the victim of phone hacking, the now largely abandoned practice of intercepting private phone conversations or voicemail. In their heyday, British tabloids competed with one another to obtain the most private conversations of the most public figures and made lots of money doing it. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. Here's Prince Harry in the audiobook version of his memoir, Spare, describing how the British tabloids treated him as a teenager. My existence was just fun and games to these people. I wasn't a human being to them. I wasn't a 14-year-old boy hanging on by his fingernails. I was a cartoon character, a glove puppet to be manipulated and mocked for fun. On top of his memoir, Harry in recent years has done a Netflix special and an Oprah interview in which he talked about feeling vulnerable in the face of what he calls a paparazzi frenzy aimed at him and his wife, Meghan Markle. All of his life, he says, the tabloids have tortured him, even as a child. He felt paranoid, like someone was always spying on him, he said. Today, a court in London essentially ruled that... Harry was right. He wasn't paranoid. His phone was being hacked. Eleanor Mills is a former editor at London's Sunday Times newspaper. She says the High Court has vindicated Harry. He sued the publisher of the Daily Mirror newspaper for hacking his voicemail to get scoops about his grief over his mother, Princess Diana's death, about romances he had as a teenager, even about a sports injury, which no one outside Harry's immediate family and friends knew about, Mills explains. Harry was having huge trust issues with those in his inner circle because these stories kept appearing in the tabloid newspapers and he didn't understand what was going on. The articles date back to the 1990s and early 2000s, the heyday of the British tabloid's power, Mills recalls. The best-selling scoop that you could have back in those times was something about the royal family. Princess Diana was the golden goose as far as newspapers were concerned because she sold so many copies. But her sons, William and Harry, also were very, very good for business. The judge ruled in Harry's favour in 15 of the 33 articles he sued over and awarded him around $180,000 in damages. This is one of several phone hacking lawsuits that have come a generation after this practice was made obsolete. Not by any crisis of conscience among newspaper editors, but more by evolving technology and declining tabloid budgets. Patience is, in fact, a virtue especially in the face of vendetta journalism. These are Harry's own words read aloud outside the courtroom today by his lawyer, David Sherburn. Today is a great day for truth as well as accountability. In his ruling, the judge said phone hacking was widespread and habitual and that newspaper executives were not only aware of it, but covered it up. And he mentioned one of them by name, Piers Morgan. He's a TV personality now, but he used to be a UK newspaper editor. 
of the Daily Mirror in the 1990s and early 2000s when this very phone hacking took place. I've never hacked a phone or told anybody else to hack a phone. That's Morgan on his London doorstep this afternoon with a crowd of reporters outside. He's been one of the biggest critics of Harry and his wife. He's called them spoiled brats, made fun of their mental health issues, and called for them to be stripped of their titles of Duke and Duchess. Though today he actually used Harry's title. As for him saying this is a good day for truth, the Duke has been repeatedly exposed in recent years as someone who wouldn't know the truth if it slapped him around his California tanned face. Left unsaid is what happens to the newspaper executives, Morgan among them, that a London court has said were complicit. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. A new season of Reacher drops on Prime Video today. It's the mystery thriller based on the hero from Lee Childs's successful series of novels. NPR TV critic Eric Degen says it's also an example of an important pop culture trend, dad TV. Jack Reacher is a distinctive, down-to-earth action hero. Created by novelist Lee Child, he's sharply perceptive and strong, a former military police investigator roaming the country using his training and experience to solve crimes. And, as he's played by Alan Richson in Prime Video's crackling thriller series, Reacher is bold enough to take action after noticing someone following him and his friends during an investigation. There's a black sedan across the street a couple houses down. Same one as yesterday. Guess you were right, being followed. How you want to play this? I'm going to go introduce myself. What follows... (laughs) ...is the sound of Reacher stomping on the car bumper hard enough to set off the airbag beating up the goons sitting in the driver's seat. The show's second season features lots more of Richson's note-perfect embodiment of Reacher, a giant-sized, super-smart hero that Tom Cruise couldn't quite nail in two past films. But it's also a great example of a genre some critics are calling dad TV. One reason why can be found in the show's first season, when Reacher explains to a friend why he doesn't have a fixed address or home base. Grew up in the military, worked in the military. Always told where to go, when to be there. Always see my country on my own terms. What about money? Pensions wired to a Western Union each month. Don't you miss your family? I guess so. They're all dead. I've always defined dad TV as programming appealing to and reflecting the perspectives of middle-aged men, who are often, as it turns out, dads, and the people who know and love them. In Reacher's case, that means a show centered on a take-charge guy who often solves problems with his fists, without a lot of the pressures that many average dads face. No mortgage, no car note, and no full-time job or boss to worry over. Reacher makes that notion pretty plain in a scene from the second season where he explains his perspective to some army buddies who've all settled down. Homeownership is like keeping snakes as pets or ballroom dancing competitions. Fine if that's what you're into. I just don't see the appeal. The appeal of a steady job? Corporate world doesn't seem that different from the army and that always felt a little like a cage. In the show's second season, Reacher reunites with members of the old investigative unit he used to lead in the army. They know one of their old crew has been murdered and fear they're all on some kind of hit list. The crisis gives Reacher a chance to reunite with a beautiful female member of his old unit, who was slow to answer telephone calls. How'd you know I was undercover? Considering the circumstances, you would have come right away. But you didn't, which can only mean you didn't get our messages until recently. 
If you were on vacation, you would have checked in with your office periodically. So you had to be working undercover. Same old preacher. Okay, trust me, their chemistry gets steamier as the season rolls along. But that exchange also shows off Reacher's analytical skills and smarts. The great fun of Prime Video's Reacher series is the way it balances the hero's military-trained fighting expertise and pragmatism with a sharp investigator's intellect, which is fun for everyone to watch, not just dads. And sure, dad TV sounds like one of those pop culture terms invented as an insult, but turns out it's also the perfect description for a series like Reacher, which offers an entertaining ride taking a compelling character through an adventure packed with wish fulfillment, fistfights, a dollop of romance, and a righteous hero crusading for justice. I'm Eric Daggett. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at sincere.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up just after the top of the hour, homelessness hits a record high nationally as pandemic aid programs end and rents become unmanageable. And Russia has freed violent criminals in exchange for them serving in the war against Ukraine. Crime victims' families say justice has been denied. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA. And New England Conservatory Prep School, open to students under 18. Enroll in spring music classes and ensembles today at necmusic.edu prep. WBUR has been reporting for months on the family shelter system here in Massachusetts. It's bursting at the seams. During the course of our reporting, it's moved from a low simmer to a boil, and it shows no signs of relenting. I'm Gabriela Emanuel. This kind of in-depth reporting takes investment. Make a year-end contribution at WBUR.org. And thank you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Right around this time of year, one of the things we always look forward to is getting a visit from our friends at NPR Music to talk about the best music of the year. So it is a treat today to be joined by pop critic and correspondent Ann Powers. And hello. It's so nice to be here. All right, and so NPR Music has published its list of the best songs of 2023. And right away, there is something that stands out here. This is a list of the 123 best songs of 2023. And um, last I checked, that is not a round number. Please explain yourselves. <laughs> well, it's true. We could have done the best 100, the best 50, the best 1 million. Uh, on some level, we just picked uh, a number that relates to the year, right? 2023. Mm -hmm. But you know, also think about this. One, two, three, go. 
because our list is interactive and it's designed to lead people to music that they might not have heard before. The listener has to participate to play our game. Explain to me how this whole situation actually works. Okay, so our list is unranked. You can start with any song that you want to start with. Pick any one. Maybe something you already know, like uh, Not Strong Enough by Boy Genius. Or Victoria Monet's song On My Mama. I put that on my own mama. And then the list gives you seven more songs that our team handpicked because we think you'll you'll like these ones too. And maybe maybe it's another R&B song if you pick Victoria Monet, but maybe it's a pop song, maybe it's a ballad, maybe it's something you didn't expect. Want to try it? Obviously. Why don't you start? <laughs> pick something you loved from 2023 and let's see how deep we can get into this. Okay, I'm going to pick a song that seems like it should stay in its box. This is I Remember Everything by Zach Bryan featuring Casey Musgraves. Cold shoulder, closing time, you begging me to stay till the sun rose. Strange words come on out of the bone man's mouth when his mind's broke. This is a song that was a number one song on the Hot 100 and on the Hot Country chart. Uh, featuring two really important young country stars who also kind of defy the edges of the genre. But I picked this song because everybody thinks of country as being like its own island, you know, it can totally contained within itself. So let's show how quickly we can get beyond country with our little game. All right, where do we go next? Well, hit on the interactive, and we're going to go somewhere that I think you're going to be excited about. Why do you see the name of that song? I do, indeed. One of my favorite artists, Noah Kahn. And he's with Lizzie McAlpine on this one. Yeah, this is a song, Call Your Mom, that I discovered because of my niece, Megan. Shout out, Megan Powers, who made me a big Noah Kahn fan. And it is, you know, just a really beautiful expression of deep friendship. It's a little less known than the Zach Bryan, Casey Musgrave song, but the connections between this totally not country song and the one we're talking about as country are pretty obvious. You know, they're both duets. They're both, you know, about longing, regret, I don't know, b- believing in someone or something. And Noah Kahn is one of those guys who fills a lot of categories, country, Americana, pop. He could kind of live anywhere. But let's jump again and see where we end up. All right, one more jump. And and tell us about this next artist. This is someone I'm not familiar with. Yeah, so this is what I mean by discovering something you might not know by using our interactive. This is Duran Jones. Wait till I get over. has a band called Duran Jones and the Indications. They do throwback soul, and they're out of Indiana. But he grew up in the South, and this beautiful album he recorded, Wait Till I Get Over, is his own story of growing up in the South, 
and the struggles he went through and his family background. It's really beautiful. And this song, as you can hear, is very gospel oriented. So you wouldn't expect that out of, you know, a Noah Kahn song. Like he's hardly a gospel artist. But we saw that connection between the emotionality and the riskiness, the emotional riskiness of Noah and where Duran goes on this song. And I think if you like Noah, you're going to like Duran. All right, I'll have to check him out. I mean, I see the through line between these three songs we've been talking about, but Anne, this is a huge undertaking. Y'all did this for every single song on this list? Yeah, <laughs> yeah and and we, we bled right into this list, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> we worked really hard, but we did it for, for our listeners because we know how overwhelming trying to find new music can be in this, you know, it's sort of like walking into one of those big box stores and looking around and being like, I don't even know what department to start in, you know, to fulfill my needs, what I need. And so what we want to do is like take you by the hand and say, hey, you want this. I think you're also going to find out you need this other sound. You need this other style of music and you didn't even know it. But you know what? If you just want to uh, go for what we think are the 25 best songs of the year, we also have a list for that, the best of the best. So, okay, you can kind of take this two different ways. You can stick to those official recommendations, the best of the best, or you can let the algorithm build your own mixtape. Pretty cool. Yeah, and it's, it's important to say that the algorithm here is handmade, bespoke, you know, use any of those <laughs> words you want to use, uh, that kinds of algorithms who's, that's the kinds of algorithms that serve you on most streaming services, they're fine. I've actually discovered a lot um, just like passively letting my streams stream. But this is different because it's people thinking about how things are connected and thinking in unexpected ways. And it's going to give you more surprises. NPR's Ann Powers, thank you. Thank you so much. You can see NPR Music's list of the best songs of 2023, all 123 of them, at npr.org slash music. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. 
Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stick around this afternoon as we unpack one of the great mysteries of daily life. Why doctors still wear pagers. That's ahead at 545 here on All Things Considered. We'll have mostly clear skies tonight, lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with temps in the upper 40s. Then Sunday will be in the mid-50s under cloudy skies. Showers could move in by Sunday afternoon. It's 55 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Homelessness has reached a record high nationally as pandemic aid runs out and rents skyrocket. When it just costs more per month for people to get into a place and keep a place, you get this vicious game of musical chairs. The increase was driven by those who lost housing for the very first time. It's Friday, December 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay almost $150 million to two former Georgia election workers he defamed following the 2020 election. We'll tell you about today's jury decision. Also ahead, loved ones and hundreds of law enforcement officers gathered to pay tribute and say farewell to a Waltham police officer hit and killed in a crash at a utility work site. It's 5.01. News headlines are first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Israeli military officials say its troops mistakenly killed three hostages being held in Gaza today. As NPR's Kerry Khan reports, a military official says the three hostages taken from Israel on October 7th were mistaken as a threat. According to the Israeli army's chief spokesman, the three hostages, all men, were killed in a densely populated area of Gaza, where fighting between Israeli forces and the militant group Hamas has been intense in recent days. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari says the hostages may have been fleeing or abandoned from their captors and were mistakenly identified as a threat. Hagari said the incident will be fully investigated. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has been under increasing pressure to do more to get the hostages released from Gaza, called the killings an unbearable tragedy, one that is being mourned by the entire state of Israel. According to the prime minister's office, at least 110 hostages taken from Israel are believed to still be alive and held in Gaza. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Former Trump campaign attorney Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay $148 million in damages to two former election workers in Georgia he lied about following the 2020 election. As NPR's Miles Parks reports, Giuliani was found liable for defamation in federal court. Throughout the week-long trial, jurors heard how election lies spread by Giuliani and former President Trump ruined the lives of two former Fulton County election workers. Ruby Freeman broke down crying as she explained how she didn't feel safe introducing herself to anyone anymore. Her daughter, Shay Moss, said most days she hopes she doesn't wake up in the morning. The women received a torrent of racist threats for months after Giuliani shared a video he falsely claimed showed the women doing election crimes. 
Giuliani also faces 13 criminal charges for his role in trying to overturn the election in Georgia. Miles Parks, NPR News, Washington. Some drug makers may have to pay rebates to customers after hiking their prices past the rate of inflation. Scott Massioni of member station WIPR has the story. The Biden administration says it's identified 48 drugs in the Medicare program whose prices outpaced inflation in the last quarter of 2023. The Inflation Reduction Act allows the White House to penalize companies working with Medicare that overcharge for drugs. Medicare recipients could see reductions in payments by thousands of dollars due to the rebates the government might impose starting on January 1st. The drugs include Ableset, which treats fungal infections, and Gamistan, which protects against hepatitis A. About 5 million Americans on Medicare struggle to pay for their prescription drugs. For NPR News, I'm Scott Massioni. The mix close on Wall Street as the Dow held on to its record high today, up 56 points to settle at 37,305. The Nasdaq was up 52 points. The S&P was down a fraction. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Waltham police officer killed in a hit-and-run crash at a utility worksite last week has been laid to rest. Paul Tracy was a 28-year veteran of the department. WBUR's Fausto Menard reports on today's funeral in Waltham. Tracy's casket arrived at Our Lady Comforter of the Afflicted Parish just before 10 o'clock this morning. Outside the church, police officers from around the region stood at attention. Delivering the eulogy, Tracy's brother Jimmy called Paul a true hero. Paul lost his life in the line of duty, doing what he loved most, protecting and serving the citizens of Waltham. And he is leaving behind a great legacy for the rest of us to follow. Officer Tracy was buried with police honors at Mount Feek Cemetery in Waltham. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. The family of Roderick Jackson announced today at setting up a scholarship in his name. The national grid worker was killed alongside Tracy. Manny Asprilla Hassan says his older brother was the first in the family to go to college. He says the scholarship is a way to help others reach their dreams. Less fortunate, single parent home, school is just a dream, college is just a dream to them. You know, we, would want, we want to support those individuals. Services for Roderick Jackson will be held tomorrow in Cambridge. The man charged in connection with the crash remains held without bail. The average cost to fill your oil tank has dropped this week. The latest survey by the State Department of Energy Resources says the average price per gallon of heating oil is $4.04. That's 13 cents a gallon lower than a week ago and 80 cents a gallon below the average price at this time last year. Well, it'll be a nice December night if you're heading out tonight. We'll get down to the upper 30s under mostly clear skies. Tomorrow looks like the pick of the weekend in the upper 40s and mostly sunny. Clouds roll in for Sunday with rain possible by afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Monday will be wet and windy. Looks like rain all day. Highs around 60 degrees. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Homelessness in America spiked last year, reaching a record high. That's the finding of an annual count released today. 
Every January, the government conducts a one-night snapshot count of the nation's homeless. And this year's snapshot shows more than 650,000 people are living outside in tents and cars or in shelters. NPR's Jennifer Ludden is here to explain. Hi there. Hi. We've reported all year on places big and small struggling with homelessness. So is it fair to say that this big jump is not a surprise? Absolutely. Not a surprise, but the count is up 12% from the year before, and that that is a huge jump. Uh, Now, homelessness, it's been rising since 2017, and that's in large part because of this massive shortage of affordable housing. Um, There was a pause during the pandemic. The Biden administration says that is because of that sweeping federal aid for renters that kept a lot of people from getting evicted. But last year, that aid ran out. Then inflation skyrocketed, and we saw median rents hit a record high. So given all that, advocates had really been warning about a major increase like this. Uh, Here's Jeff Olivet. He heads the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness. We simply don't have enough homes that people can afford. And when you combine rapidly rising rent, that it just costs more per month for people to get into a place and keep a place, you get this vicious game of musical chairs. And all of it says this this uh, rise in homelessness was all across the country, cities, suburbs, and rural areas. Well, what does the report say about who specifically was without housing? You know, the numbers are up across the board. The highest rise was for families with children. A quarter of the unhoused are seniors. Um, And there was a really sharp increase in people who lost housing for the first time. I spoke with someone that happened to in July this year. Uh, Takiya Cheeks is a single mom in Virginia. After losing her job and getting evicted, she says she and her four children started sleeping in their car in a Walmart parking lot. I'm sitting up, I'm not getting sleep because I'm watching over my children because it's a lot of people that's walking around. And I was getting up early in the morning, go over to Wawa's, which was across the street to make sure we get there early. Therefore, I know it's not that many people in the bathrooms for my children just to wash up. You know, Cheeks said she did get another job delivering packages for Amazon that let the family stay in a motel for a couple of months. And then in October, they finally moved into a house with rental assistance. But that aid is temporary. Hmm. We've also been reporting on the surge of asylum seekers at shelters in many cities. Did that play a role in this big rise? You know, I asked Anna Leva about that. She heads the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Um, She says the volunteers who went out to do this nationwide count, they don't ask people if they are seeking asylum. But Oliva and others think migrants definitely added to the numbers in some places. She says she sees homeless service providers really struggling with this surge. These communities need to have resources so that people are not left out on the street or in emergency shelters for long periods of time, because that does disrupt the normal operations of homeless services. Well, Jennifer, as we noted, this snapshot of homelessness was taken back in January, even though it's out today. Has anything happened over the last year that might help more people with housing? Uh, Well, the Biden administration says it has stepped up funding and streamlined the process for housing vouchers, among a lot of other things, and that helped move more people into permanent housing this year. Um, They also point out that there is a record number of new apartments under construction, which could help ease this housing shortage. You know, inflation is down, rents are not rising as fast, but housing and food are still so much more expensive than just a few years ago. And a lot of people, not just the lowest 
lowest income say they are continuing to struggle. Uh, to really bring down homeless numbers, advocates say there should be far more federally subsidized housing. Right now, only one in four people who qualify can actually get it. And expanding that would take a lot more money from Congress. NPR's Jennifer Ludden, thank you. Thank you. As Russia's military fortunes in Ukraine have rebounded, a key factor has been the recruitment of Russian convicts into the fight, lured by a secretive program of government pardons for those who survive. Yet, as NPR's Charles Maines reports from Moscow, the families of the convicts' victims are now struggling to live with the consequences. The footage is grainy in that way that digital video, even from a few years ago, just 2015, can look older than it is. The setting, a local World War II memorial park in Kisilovsk, a city in a mining region of central Siberia. But this much is clear when Vera Pektorova takes the microphone. She could sing. Vladimir Pektorov, Vera's uncle, says for all her talents, what he remembers and misses most is her kindness. In the entire 23 years that I knew her, I can't remember her arguing with me or anyone. She was a happy and good person. All of this made the recent news more painful. Pektorov's killer, an ex-boyfriend who'd been convicted by a Russian court of torturing her to death over the course of 12 hours in January of 2020, was again free, despite ongoing litigation, despite the law, despite logic. We called the court to ask why it was taking so long for the next hearing, and they told us it was because they couldn't find him. We were shocked. He disappeared. Pektolova's family later came across a photograph on social media that showed him at a barbecue with friends, wearing army fatigues. Their inquiries to the defense ministry provided no clear answers, until months later they learned that Pektolova's killer had received a pardon from Russian President Vladimir Putin for his military service in Ukraine. He was less than a year into a 17-year prison term. People I barely know come up to me and say, is it really true they let him out? They are concerned that he'll be out walking the same streets with them and their children. Many families in Russia, they now have this dilemma. Alona Popova is a human rights lawyer who has long championed changes to domestic violence laws in Russia. Popova says she and her team have been contacted by scores of victims and their families who learned unexpectedly that convicted rapists and murderers were roaming free following their service in Ukraine. And we don't have any statistics because we don't know how many people were mobilized from these penal colonies. We don't know how many people returned from the war. We don't know how many people were pardoned because all this information now is like a secret. Yet the program to recruit prisoners couldn't be more public. In September of 2022, videos emerged of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the then head of the Wagner mercenary group, making the rounds of prison colonies and offering a deal. Survive six months in Ukraine fighting for Wagner, and you're a free man. There's zero chance you'll go back to prison, Prigozhin tells a crowd of convicts in one video. But those of you who get to Ukraine and then change your mind will mark you a deserter and shoot you on the spot. 
И, естественно, желающих идти на фронт не такое уж и большое количество, как кажется. There aren't that many people who want to go to the front, explained Sergei Sokolov, editor of Nova Gazeta, a Russian independent newspaper that's covered Wagner. Поэтому... So someone on high had a great idea that there's a group of people ready to take part in the war in exchange for their freedom, prisoners. And if these people have moral shortcomings, well, that wasn't a concern. Wagner's recruitment effort came at a moment when Russia was struggling on the battlefield, says Sokolov. Yet Prigozhin soon left the picture. He died in a still unexplained plane crash in August of this year, by then, the defense ministry had taken over the practice of recruiting prisoners. Meanwhile, for Sokolov and his colleagues at Nova Gazeta, the story was about to get personal. The body of Anna Politkovskaya was found with several gunshot wounds. The Russian journalist was shot in the head. In 2006, Anna Politkovskaya, the newspaper's star investigative reporter, was shot to death in her Moscow apartment building. She was 48 and had two children. Last month, the newspaper learned that one of several men convicted of her murder had also been freed to go fight in Ukraine. Sokolov says the assassin's release was painful but expected given the times. He also argues it was proof. Authorities had little intention of resolving the key question that's hung over the case for nearly two decades. Who ordered Politkovskaya's murder? So you can once and for all come to the conclusion that no one is interested in solving the murder of Anna Politkovskaya. Popova, the human rights lawyer, notes the families of victims who challenge the amnesty rulings publicly risk violating new laws that make, quote, denigrating the Russian army a criminal penalty. Whatever their past crimes, notes Popova, these former convicts are now celebrated military veterans in the eyes of the government. They're like uh, so-called heroes. And when you are the hero, the whole system is behind your back. So you are totally protected by this system. When asked about the amnesty program, the Kremlin has been unrepentant. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov defended the practice, saying the men have atoned for their crimes through blood on the battlefield. Vladimir Pechtelev, Vera's uncle, says he finds such justifications baffling. The government isn't the victim here. The parents are. How can Vera's killer have pushed himself of guilt in their eyes? The Pechtelev family say they're going public in the hope the Kremlin will reconsider its decision. Maybe, they say, President Putin made a mistake or hadn't been informed of all the circumstances. All Pechtelev knows is he wouldn't wish what his family's going through on his worst enemy. For three years, all we sought was basic justice, he says. Justice that's slipping away. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on All Things Considered, former Donald Trump campaign lawyer Rudy Giuliani is ordered to pay two Georgia election workers nearly $150 million for spreading lies about them after the 2020 election. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Real Women Have Curves at ART. This holiday season, see the empowering new musical about life's unexpected curves, now playing. AMREP.org. 
and Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. On Wall Street, the Dow ended the day up 0.15%. The S&P slipped just a bit, down 0.01%. NASDAQ went up a third of a percent. In local business news, a Lexington Life Sciences company wants to go public. The Boston Business Journal reports Fractal Health hopes to raise $100 million in its initial public offering. The IPO isn't expected to take place until next year. The company makes two experimental treatments for type 2 diabetes, a gene therapy called Rejuva and a medical device called Revita. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design. Accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? To this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Temperatures will dip to the upper 30s tonight and it will be mostly clear out. Tomorrow looks mostly sunny. It'll be in the upper 40s. Cloudy Sunday and there's a chance of rain by that afternoon. Sunday's high will reach the mid-50s. Monday will be rainy around 60 degrees and windy. It's 54 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises. Committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. From BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Rudy Giuliani has been ordered to pay $148 million in damages to two former election workers in Georgia he lied about after the 2020 election. The decision and that staggering sum come at the end of a a week-long civil trial in which the workers tearfully recounted how the viral conspiracy theories ruined their lives. NPR's Miles Parks was at the federal courthouse in D.C. all week, and he's on the line with us now. Hi, Miles. Hey, Ari. Tell us who these two women are who Giuliani is now on the hook to pay close to $150 million. So their names are Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss. Freeman is, is Moss's mother. And these women have really become symbols of how the 2020 election conspiracies have actually affected real people. Some people might remember they also testified as part of the January 6th committee investigation last year. Both women helped to administer the election in Georgia and Georgia's Fulton County. And at in the time when votes were being counted or after the time votes were being counted, Rudy Giuliani posted when he was working as Trump's campaign attorney, posted video of the absentee ballot counting center that they were working in and said that the video showed evidence that the women were committing election crimes. There was That was proven false even at the time. And as part of these proceedings, Giuliani admitted that was false. Multiple investigations have also showed that that was false. But as we heard in this trial, those lies went viral and really did ruin these women's lives. Giuliani was found liable for defamation by the judge in this case. So this trial was just to determine the damages that were owed. How did the attorneys for these women make the case that these lies were worth this amount of money? 
So they really made two arguments. One was practical and one was emotional. On the practical side, they had an expert witness, a marketing professor at Northwestern, who came in and showed the jury how these lies reached tens of millions of people. She estimated that uh, strategic communications plan to essentially combat the lies would cost as much as $47 million. But then on the emotional side, both women who were affected testified tearfully. And we heard throughout the week the racist voicemails that they received. The jurors saw more death threats via email and messages than I could count. And at the end, uh, after this staggering number was revealed, Shea Moss came outside on the courtroom steps and said, essentially, she hopes that this number is big enough that this, uh, you know, never happens to another civil worker ever again. Hmm. Tell us about the argument that Giuliani's defense team made unsuccessfully, as it turns out. Well, so his defense attorney, Joseph Sibley, essentially said lots of people were spreading election lies in the time after the 2020 election. And Giuliani shouldn't be responsible for all of them. But the judge herself said that Sibley had a really hard job because Giuliani has not stopped lying about these women. Even this week, as this trial had already begun on Monday after a day of trial, Giuliani came out on the courthouse steps and said everything I said about those women was true essentially showing that he still believes those lies and is continuing to spread them, you have to assume that that had played some role in the jury's decision to award this large damaging sum. I will say that after the verdict, Giuliani said, called the number absurd and indicated that he was going to appeal it. And bigger picture, what does this outcome mean uh, about the question of whether people will be held accountable for efforts to overturn the 2020 election? What does this result mean in that context? I talked to one voting expert who was optimistic that a large number here would deter candidates and campaigns from lying about election workers going forward. But it's also important to note that, you know, Donald Trump, for instance, has been indicted for his role in trying to overturn the election. And he has continued up until this day to keep spreading lies about the 2020 election results. So it's probably far fetched to assume this is all just going to be over. NPR's Miles Parks. Thank you. Thank you. K-12 students caught with illegal drugs at school often face all kinds of consequences, suspension, expulsion, and in some cases, criminal charges. But amid an overdose crisis among teenagers, some school districts are trying a bold new experiment, focusing on rehabilitation instead of zero tolerance. Sequoia Carrillo has been reporting on those efforts and joins us now. Hi, Sequoia. Hi, Juana. Sequoia, I want to start by talking about the Los Angeles Unified School District. It is one of the school districts that's trying out this new approach. What drove them to try to act now? So this new approach comes in response to a growing number of student opioid overdoses on LAUSD campuses. Last fall, a student died in a school bathroom after a suspected fentanyl overdose. Shortly after that, LAUSD began stalking naloxone, a fast-acting medicine that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose in schools. And since then, the district says it's administered naloxone 55 times. That sounds like a high number. It's definitely a lot, but I have actually spoken to districts around the country who have used it more because this problem goes far beyond L.A., In 2021, fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of all teen overdose deaths, 84%, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Among adolescents, fentanyl-related overdose deaths nearly tripled from 2019 to 2021, with almost a quarter involving counterfeit pills. LAUSC Superintendent Alberto Carvalho told NPR this crisis just called for a different approach. 
we never treat that child, that student, as a criminal element or someone who broke a rule. We ought to address the root cause of the problem rather than focusing uh, on the possible consequence. We have a moral and professional obligation to provide support. And Sequoia, what does rehabilitation look like in a school setting? So I was actually able to visit a school in L.A. where these efforts are playing out. But due to privacy concerns, we're not allowed to use tape of the students or faculty. I'm also not going to name the high school. It's a very high-need school, and district officials fear that publicizing it will make it known as a drug school. But it's a high school in central Los Angeles that the district is using as a pilot program for a new expanded approach for rehabilitation. If a student is found with or has taken drugs on campus, they won't be disciplined as if they got in a fight or cheated on a test. Instead, it will be taken as a health problem. The first step is to get that student well, get them to medical care and on their feet again. And after that, the school's efforts shift to getting the student back into the classroom. Right, but how do they go about doing that? So administrators and the school's psychiatric social worker work with the student's parents to create a re-entry plan. And these plans are tailored to meet each student's individual needs following an overdose, whether they're struggling with addiction or accidentally overdosed on a counterfeit pill. Check-ins with the in-school counselor, therapy sessions, and outpatient rehabilitation with the nearby children's hospital are all available at little to no cost to the student. Sequoia, is this something we're going to be seeing more of and perhaps that we're going to see other districts begin to try? Mm -hmm. In talks with other district officials, it seems that they do want to try this, but there's a huge barrier for a lot of them, which is funding. Holding students' hands through this process and reacclimating them to school takes a lot more effort than kicking a kid out of school. That extra work isn't free. It often takes adding positions or converting part-time mental health and addiction specialists to full-time. LAUSD is very much out in front of this, and it's not the first time. They were also a very early adopter of getting naloxone in all their schools. They have the need and they have the money to make the changes to fix it. As they roll it out to other schools who need it, we'll see how it plays out. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Coming up in the next half hour, pro sports fans in Washington, D.C. are unhappy as the Washington Wizards basketball team and the Capitals hockey team might be moving to Northern Virginia. D.C. officials are trying to entice the teams to stay. It's a nice start to the weekend weather-wise, mainly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs will reach the upper 40s. Sunday will be cloudy and in the mid-50s, we might see rain by that afternoon. Thanks for listening to WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. And Harvard Square Holiday Fair. One Brattle Square, local crafts for gift-giving, today through Sunday and the 21st to 23rd, harvardsquareholidayfair.com. 
On last week's Wait, Wait, Luke Burbank explained why he loves office holiday parties. Let's take a bunch of people who are very stressed out and people are mostly not saying what they want to say for 60 to 80 hours a week, and then let's apply a river of alcohol to the situation. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. We're having a holiday gathering this week at Carnegie Hall, and it is mandatory. So join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. Hi from NPR. PR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. New York GOP leaders have chosen their candidate for the special election to replace ousted House Republican George Santos. Molly Ingram with member station WSHU reports it's a key swing seat up for grabs in the narrowly divided chamber. Republicans have chosen political newcomer Mazzie Pillup, a member of the Nassau County Legislature, as their nominee to represent New York's 3rd Congressional District. The seat was left open by Santos, who was ousted by lawmakers following a House Ethics Committee report that found Santos likely broke multiple federal laws during his campaign. He pleaded not guilty to federal fraud charges. Pillup was born in Ethiopia and immigrated to Israel as a child. She served as a paratrooper in the Israeli military before moving to the United States in 2005. Reports say Pillup is a registered Democrat who holds her current position as a Republican. She will face Democratic candidate Tom Swazi, who held the seat between 2017 and 2023. The special election is February 13th. For NPR News, I'm Molly Ingram. The mother of a six-year-old boy who shot and wounded his first-grade teacher at an elementary school in Virginia in January has been sentenced to two years in state prison. 26-year-old Deja Taylor pleaded guilty to one count of felony neglect as part of a plea deal. Her lawyers wanted a six-month sentence, but the Newport News Circuit Court judge says the seriousness of the event warranted a stiffer sentence. The child took the gun from his mother's purse, put it in his backpack, and then took it to school. Taylor is already serving a 21-month sentence on separate federal convictions related to the shooting. Wall Street ended the day in mixed territory. The Dow up 56 at 37,305. The Nasdaq up 52 at 14,813. That's up three-tenths of a percent. And the S&P 500 down a fraction. You're listening to NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program says new HIV cases have dropped significantly among unsheltered people in Boston who inject drugs. The city started seeing an uptick in such cases in 2018, according to state health officials. Cases peaked in 2021. Boston Healthcare for the Homeless credits its outreach program for the decline. The group provides services including expanded HIV testing, treatment, and street-based nursing support. Day-long celebrations are set for tomorrow to mark the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. There will be a reenactment of the night colonists boarded the East India Company's ships and threw crates of tea into Boston Harbor. They were protesting the lack of representation. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says it was the spark that ignited the American Revolution and principles of liberty. When history asked Boston In 1773, if we were willing to do what it takes to defend our liberties, we took tea leaves for ink and made the ocean our page. Our answer was clear, and it still echoes today all over the world. The East India Tea Company is donating 250 pounds of tea for tomorrow night's reenactment. More than 1,000 youth hockey players from across Boston are set to compete in the Mayor's Cup tournament. It starts tonight. Over the next two weeks, players will compete in more than 130 games. Damian Margado is running the event. He says the annual competition celebrates Boston's hockey tradition. It all 
culminates at uh, Boston College for the championship, play their final game at the Conti Forum, which is great for them. Um, the games will be on BNN. So it, it's a pretty big deal. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the Mayor's Cup. It's 534. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com and Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. In sports, the Celtics host the Orlando Magic tonight. The Seas are hoping to keep their home winning streak alive. And the division-leading Bruins are on the road against the New York Islanders tonight. Taking a look at the forecast, it won't be too cold tonight. Temperatures will dip to the upper 30s. It will be mostly clear. Tomorrow looks mostly sunny in the upper 40s. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Around the world, about a third of the food we produce goes to waste. And that may not look like much in your trash can at home, but at one of the largest food markets in the world, it is a startling sight. James Frederick reports from Mexico City. Mexico City Central de Abastos feels more like a city than a market. Half a million people visit every day, says Graciela de Paz Fuentes, the director of innovation and projects at this wholesale food market run by the Mexico City government. As we walk up and down seemingly endless aisles, she has a giddy smile on her face as she rattles off stats about this sprawling bazaar. Each day, she says, between 30 and 40,000 tons of food arrive here for sale, coming from every corner of Mexico and up to 20 countries. Tens of millions of people in and around Mexico City have food on their table thanks to the Central de Abastos. Each aisle holds a new wonder, beautifully orange papayas, glistening red tomatoes, spherical green limes stacked into a towering pyramid. All of these produce stands are beautiful, and that's because they put the best-looking fruit up front. But if you take a step behind the scenes, you see that lots of produce is about to go off. Crooked cucumbers, bruised bananas, and wilting greens sit sadly in the back of warehouses. Along every aisle of this endless market are dumpsters full of imperfect, but often edible produce. Back in the quiet of her office, De Paz told me they knew they had to urgently address the tremendous amounts of waste. 
According to the UN, about 30% of all the food produced in Mexico every year is lost or wasted. 20.4 million tons of food go to waste every year, says Lina Paul Alfaro, the representative for the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization in Mexico. But the real costs of wasted food are much higher, she says. The fertilizer, the farmland, the energy, and most of all, the water used to grow this food is also wasted. Pol and the UN have been working with the Central de Abastos to stem the tide of food waste, a particularly urgent concern in Mexico, where almost 20% of the population doesn't have enough to eat. Jorge Gutierrez, whose business sells thousands of crates of bananas and watermelons here every day, says he thought of waste as the cost of doing business. Realmente, digo, aquí no nos dejará mentir. Gutierrez says, I can't lie. When fruit gets overripe, it goes into the dumpster. But an initiative at the market is changing that. If Gutierrez sees his surplus of watermelons is about to go bad, he calls the itacate to come pick it up. It's a word in Mexico that roughly means leftovers. It's a government office at the far end of the market. This little warehouse is different from all the other ones here on the market. This is where food that's about to go off is donated, and then the city government distributes it to soup kitchens around the city. Today, crates of onions and avocados and some ugly but edible papayas and guavas are waiting to go to a soup kitchen. Since its launch in 2020, food waste at the market has fallen almost a quarter, and donated food helps serve 80,000 meals a day at soup kitchens. Just across the street from the market is one of them. There, I spoke to 62-year-old Leonardo Bautista, who cleans onions and green tomatoes at the market. He says it's expensive to eat at the market, almost half his daily wage. These soup kitchens are a lifesaver for him. Hundreds of tons of food still end up in market dumpsters every day. But little by little, the Itacate is going some way to changing that. For NPR News, I'm James Frederick in Mexico City. Now back to this capital city, Washington, D.C. Like many places, it's struggling to reinvent its downtown now that fewer people are working from offices. And the city may lose some more key workers, namely the Washington Wizards and Washington Capitals. This week, the owner of the professional basketball and hockey teams announced a deal to relocate out of D.C. and into neighboring Virginia. Jenny Gathright of member station WAMU is here with details. Hey, Jenny. Hi, Ari. Tell us about the deal that team owners announced this week. Full details are still trickling out, but essentially it's a huge $2 billion public-private partnership. The agreement is between the company that owns, owns the teams, which is Monumental Sports and Entertainment, and officials in Virginia. It would create a huge entertainment and sports district, so not just a new arena, but new practice facilities, retail, restaurants, a concert venue, and that would all be built in Alexandria, Virginia, right across the Potomac River from D.C. The deal still needs to clear some legislative hurdles, but Ted Leonsis, the owner of both teams, and Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin are projecting a lot of confidence that it'll happen by 2028. In which case, what happens to the neighborhoods that these teams have been in here in Washington, D.C.? What would it mean for the D.C. economy? 
It's worrying. I mean, fans bring foot traffic, which helps with public safety. Fans ride public transit into the game, so they support the D.C. metro system. Fans support local restaurants and businesses. I spoke with a local economist who said that this downtown economic engine is what the city has been using for years to help pay for social services like housing programs and food assistance. And this potential move comes at a time of economic uncertainty for the city. Back when that arena opened in 1997, it really transformed the Chinatown neighborhood. There was painful displacement of Chinese residents and businesses, but the transformation also grew the city's overall economy. Fast forward to now, DC's downtown is already struggling without the pre-pandemic level of office workers, and crime has gone up in Chinatown and other neighborhoods across the city over the past couple of years. So these two big sports franchises leaving would compound an already difficult challenge for DC's mayor, who really needs to figure out a way to reinvent the city's downtown. What are you hearing from Wizards and Caps fans? So, Leonsis says his company still plans to maintain a presence in arena in downtown D.C. that would host women's professional games, college basketball, and concerts, but that's not providing much solace to many sports fans here. Of course, some Virginia fans are happy, and some people are more neutral, but when I went to talk to fans outside the arena before Wednesday night's Wizards games, many of them were feeling betrayed. They felt like this owner is motivated by profit over the city's people. Here's David Levy. He's a Wizards season ticket holder and lifelong fan. I think it's disgusting. It's just a very short-sighted decision for a city that really needs people to be drawn downtown. And meanwhile, across the river, some neighbors near the proposed development are already starting to mobilize against it over concerns like traffic and parking. Is this a done deal? Are D.C. officials still holding out any hope that they could get the teams to stay? D.C. officials say they're not done fighting. This week, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser and lawmakers unveiled some 11th hour legislation that would give Leonsis' company $500 million over the next several years to renovate their downtown arena. It's something the team and the city have been negotiating over for months. So D.C. officials say they want to keep that offer on the table in case the Virginia deal falls apart. Mayor Bowser has been making the case for an urban arena over a suburban one and says that that's the best for fans. So this is what I know about cities. People love real cities. They are hubs of history and culture and energy. The Virginia deal also still requires approval from both the State General Assembly and the City Council of Alexandria, and that's not guaranteed. Jenny Gathright of WAMU, thanks for your reporting. Thank you so much, Ari. You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Remember the pager? Well, to this day, at many hospitals, doctors still communicate using the seemingly outdated piece of technology. Jeff Guo from our Planet Money podcast recently tried to understand why. A long, long time ago, well, not that long ago, there was this device called a pager. Some people called them beepers. <laughs> yeah, okay, pagers were huge in the 80s. But the cell phone kind of made the pager obsolete because most pagers only receive messages. You can't actually text anyone back. It's a one-way communication pathway, all right? That's Dr. Christopher Peabody. People call him Toph. He's an emergency room physician at San Francisco General Hospital. And he says pagers cause all kinds of problems for doctors trying to get in touch with each other. So a classic thing is like, I never got the page, you know? Where were you? Never got the page. And look, Toph has heard all the classic arguments for why hospitals still use pagers to this day. You can throw them in the toilet, you can drop them, and they run on a double-A battery, okay? Like forever, and they're cheap. They're like the cockroaches of communication. 
Also, pagers get better service. They run on different wireless networks than cell phones, so they're more reliable in an emergency. Nevertheless, a few years ago, Toff and his colleague, Dr. Mary Mercer, tried to get their fellow doctors to switch to a more modern way to communicate. Tried to get them to use texting. They ran a little pilot program at their hospital. One of the nice things about texting is that you can send pictures. Mary says during the pilot program, a patient came into the ER with this badly broken ankle, and she just texted out a snapshot. An orthopedic surgeon came down right away to take a look. Everyone was high-fiving after that. Like Really? Yes. The emergency resident and I high-fived. The patient high-fived. <laughs> the orthopedic resident high-fived. You, know. you high-fived yeah. the patient? Yes. Oh, they were thrilled. Everyone was like, wow, look at how efficient that was. But as the pilot program continued, Marientoff realized that texting might have one disadvantage. It might have made communication a little too easy. That was the experience of Abhinav Jangla, who was an orthopedics resident at the time. Abhinav says with texting, he started getting interrupted way more frequently by the other doctors. Like, all the time, they'd be like, Oh, I can just text the orthopedics real quick. Hey, it's not a console. just wanted to ask, like, what do you think of this? In the end, a lot of doctors just preferred to stick with their old-fashioned pagers. And maybe there's a bigger lesson here which is that whenever an organization adopts a new kind of technology, you're not just changing the tools that people use, you're changing how people work and changing how they work together. In this case, the doctors discovered an unexpected benefit of their old-fashioned pagers. By making communication a little harder, the pager forces people to be more succinct and also to think twice before they reach out to you. On that note, I just want to let my editors know I'm turning off my email. If you want to reach me, you can just send me an old-fashioned letter. Just kidding, I think. Jeff Guo, NPR News. To hear more about this story and others like it, listen to the Planet Money podcast. Support for Planet Money comes from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for being with 90.9 WBUR on this Friday evening. Coming up in the next half hour of All Things Considered, a New York Times investigation reveals some surprising details about what happened behind the scenes of the U.S. Supreme Court before the justices overturned Roe v. Wade. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Inflation has cooled in recent months, but that doesn't mean prices are back to pre-pandemic levels. Economists say in most cases that's not likely to change. The new pricing reality and wait, wait at 10 tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Listen again tomorrow. 
Tonight, skies will be mostly clear. Temperatures will drop to the upper 30s. It'll be mostly sunny tomorrow with pretty pleasant temperatures for mid-December, upper 40s. Sunday will hit the mid-50s with cloudy skies. We could see rain by afternoon. And it's looking really rainy for Monday and windy. It'll be warm around 60 degrees. It's 54 degrees in Boston at 550. WBUR supporters include Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at globesanta.org. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving to create more of the stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or even your old car. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. Many U.S. highways have an unfortunate racist legacy. Federal planners often routed them directly through low-income black and brown neighborhoods, dividing communities and polluting the air. Now the Biden administration is trying to repair some of the harms. But as Drew Hawkins in New Orleans found, not everyone agrees on the best way to do that. For more than a century, Claiborne Avenue was the economic and cultural heart of black life in New Orleans. But then in the 1960s, Interstate 10 came along, and a section of it plowed right through Treme, one of the oldest black neighborhoods in the country. Claiborne Avenue now lies in the shadow of the elevated highway called the Claiborne Expressway. Over the years, there have been some efforts to enliven the empty and unused spaces underneath the highway overhead. Nine years ago, they put a playground here. But no children play here. There's trash and needles scattered around, and it's so loud, it's hard to hold a conversation. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Yes. Amy Stelly suggested I meet her here. She lives just over a block away in her childhood home. So what about kids playing? Kids never come here because kids are smart. It's the adults who aren't. It's the adults who built the playground under the interstate. Stelly is an artist and urban designer. She also started the Claiborne Avenue Alliance with other residents to try to do something about the noisy, polluting highway looming above. For her, there's only one way to fix it. Removal is the only cure. Stelly and her alliance submitted a proposal to President Biden's Reconnecting Communities program. They were looking for funding to figure out what it would take to move the highway out of the neighborhood. I'm insisting on it because I'm a resident of the neighborhood and I live with this every day. In many ways, the project seemed like the perfect candidate for reconnecting communities. The Claiborne Expressway was even specifically referenced by the White House when it announced the kind of projects the money was for. But Stelly's proposal was denied. Instead, the feds gave $500,000 to a different proposal submitted by city and state officials. They say the highway is just too important to be moved. And they'll use the money for upgrades like lighting and drainage and ramps. Stelly says that's a waste of money. We shouldn't be using it in a way that is going to make living here more complicated or living here more dangerous. The winning proposal also suggested putting even more things underneath the interstate, like a public market complete with stages and performance spaces. Stelly says that makes about as much sense as the playground. Yes, it's a foolish idea because you're going to be exposed to the same thing. But Stelly hasn't given up. After her proposal was denied, she turned to the EPA and is now working to collect data on the health impacts. 
Oh, I forgot to censor. I'm when we sorry. met at the playground, Steli and two grad students were oh, okay. taking readings. So they're our scientists. The noise levels are as loud as a motorcycle engine and could cause permanent hearing damage. But it's not just the noise. Air pollution levels at the playground are far above the EPA's limits. We're over, we're over on noise and pollution. We are way yes. over. <laughs> One of the main pollutants the study is looking at is particulate matter 2.5. It's fine particulate matter. It's very small particles that come out of the tailpipe. Dr. Adrian Katner is with the LSU School of Public Health. She says if you breathe in too much PM 2.5, it can damage every system in your body causing a whole host of health problems. Katner is managing the EPA study. It could take up to three years to complete. There have been decades of research on highway pollution, but this is the first study focusing on the Claiborne Expressway. We're not inventing the science here. All I'm doing is I'm showing them kind of what we already know in science and then documenting it, giving them that data to then inform and influence policy. That's all I can do. Katner says their findings could help other communities fighting back against divisive infrastructure. For NPR News, I'm Drew Hawkins in New Orleans. This story comes from NPR's partnership with the Gulf States Newsroom and KFF Health News. And now, from the makers of Paddington. Come with me. And following in the footsteps of Gene Wilder and Johnny Depp. And you'll be... Timothy Chalamet becomes a chocolatier. In a world of pure imagination. It's Wonka, a candy-colored prequel to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Critic Bob Mondello says the filmmakers followed a time-honored recipe to cook up a family film that's sweet, but not too sweet. Willie's hardly an innocent when we meet him. I've spent the past seven years traveling the world perfecting my craft. He wants to start a chocolate shop. You see, I'm something of a magician, inventor, and chocolate maker. So quiet up and listen down. Nope, scratch that, reverse it. But he doesn't know business. Many people have come here to sell chocolate. They've all been crushed by the chocolate cartel. The chocolate cartel? Gotta love a kid flick that offers lessons in monopoly capitalism, ones that require some quick thinking. What are we gonna do, Willie? Huh. Huh? Huh. A double hum. Get the pencil and paper. Uh-huh. I got an idea. They need ideas. The town's chocolate overlords aren't subtle about stifling Willie's dream. Their cartel denies him a shop, calls in the law, and taste tests one of his fancier creations, made with caramel salted with the tears of a Russian clown, and then announces that of all the chocolates they've ever tasted, this is without doubt the absolute 100% worst. Woo! There we have it, ladies and gentlemen, an endorsement from Mr. S Wait, the worst? We three are the fiercest of rivals, and yet we agree on one thing. A good chocolate should be simple, plain, uncomplicated. I'm gonna hate what happens next. What happens next is they start to float. You're off your rocker, Wonka! Who in their right mind wants a chocolate that makes you fly? Well, let's find out, shall we? Who's for Africa? Pretty much everyone, it turns out, and the film finds lots of other reasons to levitate. Helium balloons for Willie and his pal Noodle, dance numbers that soar, songs with bounce. Put your hand into your pocket and get yourself some Wonka chocolate! Chalamet, who is skinny enough that he pretty clearly doesn't get high on his own supply, as it were, has a pleasant voice, and Paddington creators Paul King and Simon Farnaby know how to showcase his charm without making it cloying. Also helpful in cutting the sugar content is Hugh Grant, digitally diminished to about one foot tall, but commanding nonetheless. Good evening, 
So you're the funny little man who's been following me. Funny little man? How dare you? I will have you know that I am a perfectly respectable size for an Oompa Loompa. An Oompa what now? Allow me to refresh your memory in the form of a song so ruinously catchy that it may never leave your mind. Oh, I don't think I want to hear that. Too late. I've started dancing now. Once we've started, we can't stop it, Jim. Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Doo. This song's recycled from a 1971 original that was true to Roald Dahl, but unlike most kid flicks of that era in that its title character, played by Gene Wilder, was at once adorably quirky and menacing. Here, the menace is safely offloaded to the sort of secondary figures you'd find in Oliver or Annie. Olivia Coleman, say, playing a Miss Hannigan-ish landlady, or Keegan-Michael Key as a chocoholic police chief. No daydreaming. Freeing Chalamet to be a kinder, gentler Wonka and a persuasive champion for that blissed out world he keeps going on about. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. I'm Bob Mandela. Take a look and you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the Center for Audit Quality, committed to enhancing public trust in the economy through assurance, Auditors are serving investors, small businesses, and working Americans. Learn more at thecaq.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is WBUR. It'll be mainly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Highs will reach the upper 40s. Sunday will be cloudy in the mid-50s with rain later in the day. Monday looks like a washout with temperatures around 60 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald. And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A New York Times investigation reveals some surprising details of what happened behind the scenes at the U.S. Supreme Court before the justices overturned Roe v. Wade. According to the report, conservative Justice Amy Coney Barrett opposed even taking up the case. It's Friday, December 15th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lynn Jolliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the decades-old weight loss and management program Weight Watchers is embracing weight loss drugs as part of its business. This is a path for people from a medical perspective who meet the FDA criteria for weight management medication. And then at 6.30, the Federal Reserve has teased rate cuts in the new year. That has traders buying up all sorts of risky assets. 
So those investors who can really stomach risk are moving right now rather than waiting until a couple of months from now. That's coming up on Marketplace at 6.01. The news is first. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says Israel's intense bombardment of Gaza will continue for months. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. The U.S. and Israel are discussing what the next phase of Israel's military operations might look like. The U.S. and Israel have declined to announce a specific timetable for military operations aimed at destroying Hamas rule in Gaza after Hamas's October 7th attacks that killed more than 1,200 people in Israel. A U.S. official told reporters the countries are discussing ramping down Israel's current, quote, high-intensity offensive in Gaza, which has killed more than 18,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza health officials. The U.S. wants Israel to transition to, quote, lower-intensity, commando-style ground raids in Gaza against high-value targets. President Biden said he wanted Israel to focus on how to save civilian lives and to be more careful in Gaza. A U.S. official told NPR about half the bombs Israel has deployed have not been precision bombs. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Israeli military, meanwhile, announced it mistakenly killed three hostages in Gaza. Lawmakers are hoping to have a deal on immigration policy reform and aid to Israel, Ukraine, and the Indo-Pacific by early next week. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports talks between Senate lawmakers and Biden administration officials continue at the Capitol. It's mostly quiet here on Capitol Hill. There are no votes scheduled and the House of Representatives has gone home. Reporters linger impatiently in the hallways outside of the rooms where senators, mostly in a dressy business casual rather than, say, suit and tie, are meeting. The work appears to be ongoing and will continue through the weekend. Here's Democratic negotiator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. We continue to make progress. It's admittedly a very aggressive goal to get this on the floor next week. If senators can agree to and pass a deal, a big if, the bill is expected to linger until the House returns after Christmas. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, The Capitol. We're beginning to see the clearest picture yet of how it's been going for student loan borrowers returning to repayment. Here's NPR's Corey Turner. There aren't a lot of numbers in today's release, really just two that matter. First, the department says 22 million borrowers had payments due in October. That's about half of all federal student loan borrowers currently in the system. The other number they released is that 60% of those borrowers made that first payment by mid-November. Considering how troubled the return to repayment has been so far, some in the Biden administration see these numbers as good news. And the Ed Department says the 40% of borrowers who haven't yet made that first payment still have some breathing room. For the next year, the administration has paused the harshest consequences of delinquency and even default. Corey Turner, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was up 56 points. The Nasdaq rose 52 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker. A federal court judge in Boston is considering whether the city of Boston will be held responsible for a fatal police shooting in 2016. The judge said he'll determine whether to find the city in default in a lawsuit over the shooting of Terrence Coleman. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports. Federal Judge Mark Wolf chided the city over its delays in providing documents in the suit filed by Coleman's mother, Hope Coleman. The suit alleges the city did not properly train officers to respond to mental health crises like her son's schizophrenia. City attorneys admitted there have been delays in producing documents. They also pointed to an investigation that found the shooting was justified in part because Coleman allegedly lunged at EMTs with a knife. 
Attorney Leonard Kasten represents the two officers. They were authorized to shoot him as soon as they came through the door and they saw him trying to kill the EMTs. At the hearing, Boston Police Commissioner Michael Cox said the city is working to provide all the documents requested. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The funeral for Waltham Police Officer Paul Tracy was held today. Tracy was killed last week along with National Grid worker Roderick Jackson when a driver of a pickup truck crashed into a work site. Jackson's funeral is tomorrow. The driver kill- accused of killing the two men continues to be held without bail. The number of new HIV cases among Boston's homeless population has dropped significantly over the last two years. That's after a dramatic uptick in new infections between 2018 and 2021. Dr. Jennifer Brody is director of HIV services at Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program. She says the encouraging trend is the result of a massive mobilization to test and treat people on the streets, particularly in the area known as Mass and Cass. We also were doing a tremendous amount of overdose response out on Atkinson Street and the surrounding areas. And by providing overdose response, reviving people who were experiencing overdoses, we were able to build a tremendous amount of trust in the community, which enabled us to build relationships and provide treatment and prevention for HIV. Brody says of the approximately 350 people Boston Healthcare for the Homeless cares for who have HIV, 88 percent have undetectable levels of the virus. In sports, the Celtics host the Orlando Magic tonight. The Seas are hoping to keep their home winning streak alive. They're 12-0 at the Garden this season. And the division-leading Bruins are on the road against the New York Islanders tonight. They've won four of their last six games. Temperatures will dip to the upper 30s tonight under mostly clear skies. Tomorrow looks mostly sunny. It'll be in the upper 40s, cloudy on Sunday with rain by that afternoon. Highs that day in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Supreme Court is notoriously secretive, so it's shocking to read the sheer number of disclosures in a New York Times story today about the process leading up to the decision reversing Roe v. Wade. Here are just a few of the revelations. Only four of the nine justices voted to hear the case. Liberal Justice Stephen Breyer nearly voted to dramatically restrict abortion in hopes of avoiding a more sweeping decision that overturned Roe. And conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch spent just 10 minutes reviewing a 98-page draft opinion before signing on with no changes. Jody Cantor reported this piece along with her colleague Adam Liptak. Welcome back to All Things Considered, Jody. Thank you, Ari. Let's start with the court's decision to take this case. You reveal there was an unexpected reversal. By whom? By Justice Amy Coney Barrett, the newest member of the court, she arrived at the court, as you remember, right after Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in the fall of 2020. And almost immediately, she's confronted with this decision, you know, is the court going to take uh, what looks like a potentially important abortion case? And in an early vote in January of 2021, She was a G, a grant, meaning she wanted to go ahead. And then a few months later, she changed her mind and became a deny. And we know a little bit about her early reasoning. We don't know the full explanation. We know that back in January, she was concerned about timing, about being very new on the court, and there just having been a change in the composition of the court. 
But the result is the justices who decided to take this were A, a minority of the court, only four of the nine, and B, all men. So as you know, the Supreme Court has its own particular math. And part of it is that, yes, it only takes four justices to greenlight a case. So in that scenario, every vote is essential. They have the bare minimum. As you said, it was all men. They overrode the concerns of all the women on the court who were from a variety of backgrounds, had a variety of concerns. And part of what's interesting is that it's Justice Kavanaugh who provided the last vote. Let's jump ahead to after the justices have heard oral arguments as the court is deciding how to rule. You reveal that Chief Justice John Roberts was talking with Justice Stephen Breyer, a a conservative and a liberal, about a potential compromise. What would that have looked like? So we know from the chief's public statements that what he favored was a 15-week compromise. That's what the Mississippi law was trying to do, to limit abortions to 15 weeks. And that rule is pretty accepted around the world, right? It, it, you know, lots of democracies limit abortion to about that time period. So basically, the chief justice wanted to say yes to Mississippi's 15-week law, but he wanted to say no to overturning all of Roe, meaning if you want to have an abortion before 15 weeks, okay. Months before the decision was issued, there was a shocking leak. Politico published Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. How did that undercut the attempt to reach a compromise that Chief Justice John Roberts had been working on with Justice Stephen Breyer? It's such an important question because, listen, we don't know who leaked this. We um, don't know the exact motive of the person who did it. But we can now say it's a fact, which is the leak rendered those compromise efforts hopeless. There was, I mean... It locked people into positions that might otherwise have been tentative. Exactly. Because the reason why these votes are secret until they're announced are because justices do sometimes change their positions. But once this opinion was out there, it became very difficult to do so. You know, the court investigated the source of the leaked opinion, and we still don't know where it came from. But in your article today, you write that you viewed documents and notes and conducted interviews with more than a dozen people from the court, which I find almost as shocking as the revelations themselves. It suggests the Supreme Court does not have just one leaker. The place is a sieve. I think the best way to answer your question, Ari, is to see that my job as an investigative reporter is to build people's confidence in telling the truth and to find safe pathways for them to share information that's in the public interest. And a lot of investigative journalism is about taking stories that people think or assume are untellable and finding ways to bring them into public view. And yet it's hard for me to imagine that somebody trying to tell this story would have gotten people at the court to speak in this candid way even a few years ago. To me, it feels reading this story like it is evidence of how much the tenor and culture and trust at the court has dramatically changed. Maybe, maybe not. There's a long tradition of great books and articles about the Supreme Court. And especially, you know, after a really big case is decided, um, of, of trying to understand, you know, how it happened, because this institution has so much power. It's just mind boggling to think that these nine people have so much authority over the rest of us. I want to end by looking ahead because this week the Supreme Court announced that it will decide a case on access to a commonly used abortion pill, mefepristone. And this is the first major abortion-related case 
that they've taken since overturning Roe. So what do you think the findings of your investigation and the fact that this investigation is now out there suggest about how this next case might be decided? Well, I think the headline there is that in his opinion in Dobbs, Justice Alito said that the court was washing its hands of abortion decisions, that it was stepping away from the debate. And we see that that is just not so. These abortion pills are now the most common method for terminating pregnancies. And so not long after Dobbs, we see once again that these questions of life and choice are back in the justices' hands. That's Jody Cantor. Her story with Adam Liptak for The New York Times is headlined Behind the Scenes at the Dismantling of Roe v. Wade. Thank you so much. Thank you. A small group of senators, White House officials, and leadership aides are trying to craft a bipartisan bill to address the sharp increase in migrants coming across the U.S.-Mexico border. Republicans say they cannot support aid for Ukraine and Israel unless there's a deal on the border. That deal is far from done, but the talks are already raising red flags in the House. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. House members aren't in the border talks happening in Washington. No one has seen a bill. But already, the proposals on the table are drawing ire from conservatives like South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman. Water down nothing. Water down nothing. And progressives like Washington Democrat Pramila Jayapal. And they're cruel and inhumane. Jayapal, the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, says linking border changes to money for Ukraine amounts to a ransom demand. And progressive critics say some of the proposals like further restricting entry at the border and making it harder for migrants to claim asylum, amount to reinstating Trump administration policies. You know, I just think it's unfortunate that we constantly do this, where we buy into and try to out-Republican Republicans. It's never worked. The enforcement-only strategy does not work. On the other side, House conservatives say they won't support anything less than the border security bill that passed earlier this year, with zero Democrats voting for it. Here's Florida Republican Byron Donalds. The House's position is clear. H.R. 2. We've passed it. We've had overwhelming support for it. That package includes provisions to build a border wall, step up enforcement to return migrants to home countries, and significantly restrict who qualifies for asylum. Donalds is skeptical of any deal coming out of the upper chamber. I've seen deals in this town that were negotiated amongst senators. They typically are not good deals, they are face-saving deals. Norman shares that sentiment. We'll look at it, but the devil's in the details, but what else has the Senate done that's meaningful? Nothing. Jayapal says half of House progressives would oppose the framework emerging from the Senate and says with House Republicans taking a hard line, she's not sure how it could pass. I don't know who is going to be the coalition of the willing here because Republicans want H.R. 2 and nothing less. One Republican lawmaker who is open to compromise is John Duarte. He says one way to get a deal would be pairing the conservative House border bill with protections for undocumented people who came to the U.S. as children under the Obama-era policy known as DACA. Well, we need enough Republican colleagues that want a secure border and can live with a DACA fix, and we need enough Democrats that want a DACA fix and can live with a secure border. Scott Peters, a Democrat who represents the San Diego area, says he knows there is a sense there that immigration is out of control. We can manage it better, and to the extent that that requires resources, I think Democrats can be supportive of that. Tennessee Republican Tim Burchett thinks more resources to process migrants won't solve the problem. 
He was one of the eight Republicans who ousted former Speaker McCarthy. Asked if Speaker Mike Johnson should bring up a compromise from the Senate for a vote in the House, he says, I just think that'd be a bad decision. We need a physical barrier there. We don't need more lawyers. That's what's gotten us into trouble. Every lawyer's looking for some way to get their client in this country illegally. This is not the first time President Biden has angered the left with his immigration policies. Jayapal says the coalition that elected Biden in 2020, young people, black and brown voters and immigrants, could dissolve in 2024. Throwing immigrants under the bus, which I've seen happen over and over again, is not a good election strategy because all you do, you don't bring Republicans over to you. Um, you, it, it, you just lose your base. And House members left Washington for the holiday break. But as senators continue to discuss some kind of middle ground, it's clear those on the left and the right in the House are in no mood to back it. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, The Capitol. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for spending part of your evening with us at WBUR. Coming up next on All Things Considered, a big change for Weight Watchers as the company embraces weight loss drugs as part of the program. On Wall Street today, the Dow closed the week up 0.15 percent. The S&P slipped a hair down 0.01 percent. NASDAQ gained a third of a percent. In local business news, a global life sciences giant is looking to expand its footprint in Massachusetts. Novo Nordisk is leasing a Waltham building that's being converted into lab space. The Boston Business Journal reports the Danish company will lease more than 160,000 square feet of space beginning in 2025. Novo Nordisk also has space in Cambridge, Lexington, and Watertown. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson. Top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu slash MBA. Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Taking a look at the forecast, skies will be mostly clear tonight. Temperatures will drop to the upper 30s. It'll be mostly sunny tomorrow with pleasant temperatures for mid-December, upper 40s. Sunday will hit the mid-50s with cloudy skies. We could see rain by that afternoon. It looks really rainy for Monday and quite windy. It'll be warm Monday around 60 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza, start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash firstnight. And the Boston Globe's Murder in Boston, a new podcast from the Boston Globe and HBO, re-examines the Charles and Carol Stewart case, probing a story everyone thinks they know but doesn't revealing hard truths, new findings, and changing the narrative of a pivotal time in Boston's history. Murder in Boston, wherever you get your podcasts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. 
The internet lit up earlier this week when Oprah Winfrey told People magazine that she's been using a weight loss drug to lose and maintain her weight. The media powerhouse said the drug has been a relief, a redemption, and a gift. Quote, I'm absolutely done with the shaming from other people, and particularly myself. Winfrey is giving voice to what countless people have felt since embracing a class of drugs that were originally approved for diabetes, but are now being widely embraced for weight loss. Weight Watchers, the decades-old weight loss and weight management program, is also embracing these new drugs, which are known as GLP-1s. It is a massive shift for a company that has spent 60 years advising people to count their calories or their points and use willpower. Seema Sistani is the CEO of Weight Watchers, and she joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Juana. This has been incredibly big news for people who have or are struggling with their weight and who have looked to Oprah Winfrey as a source of inspiration. I mean, Oprah's fluctuating weight in her body and the treatment she's received because of it has been a topic of public discussion for as long as I can remember. And Oprah is also the kind of person who clearly does not suffer from a lack of grit and resilience and determination. I want to start by asking you, what example does her latest revelation that she is using these class of medications give people who are struggling with weight loss on their own? Look, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that there has been a decades-long narrative that has painted weight loss as a mere test of willpower, and it's perpetuated this sense of shame and misunderstanding around what it means to live with overweight and obesity. Uh, so for some, different solutions like these new clinical interventions are really needed. At the same time, I mean, listening to Oprah talk about the liberation that she feels, the ability to better manage her weight, to take a dose of one of these drugs before Thanksgiving when, you know, like many of us, she's going to have a big dinner. It's a powerful message, but she is also someone who's invested in your company. Do you think that dilutes the power of the message that she's giving to people who are facing similar struggles? Well, look, Ms. Winfrey, along with the rest of our board, stands by our business vision and our program offerings. But we all know that her story has been one that has been a generational story and one that mimics so many people who on a day-to-day basis struggle with the same shame and bias where weight loss has been associated with a preoccupation around thinness. And what we're trying to do is reshape that conversation around weight health. It's not a matter of vanity. This is about the degree to which weight impacts your health and your quality of life. And for decades, we've discussed weight and dieting and obesity in terms that isolate people and often demotivate them. So does that mean that the advice that Weight Watchers gave people, including myself, I should note, I'm one of those people who turned to Weight Watchers at various points in my own journey, struggling with my own weight, was the advice that we were given for years about what it takes to lose weight, that focus on determination and resilience and willpower. Was that advice just wrong? Uh, I'm going to say as somebody who was very uh, humbled to take this role because Weight Watchers also worked for me. Yes, that advice was wrong because we said it was choice, not chance. And the truth is that this is a chronic condition. And ultimately for every one person that we helped, that there was one person who our program did not work for because they were dealing with a chronic relapsing condition with biology and genetics and environmental underpinnings. And so in order for us 
to reintroduce ourselves, we need to acknowledge the part that we had in the past. There are some real questions out there about how much we don't know right now about the long-term effects of medications like Ozempic and Wagovi, examples of the GLP-1s that we've been discussing. How does this program answer and speak to some of those concerns? Well, GLP-1s are not new. The indication for obesity is new, but they have been prescribed for decades for people living with diabetes. Uh, So that gave us a lot of comfort in embracing this clinical pathway. I do want to address the question of access and cost here. Many people can't afford to take these drugs. People talk about spending hundreds, if not more than $1,000 to access prescription drugs like Wagovi and Ozempic if they're not covered by insurance. And I I would imagine then that there are more who can't afford to take these medications indefinitely. Do you worry at all that this sets people who are eager for solutions and eager to lose weight up for long-term frustration? Well, I think you're bringing up a really important cultural conversation, um, which is these medications right now are incredibly expensive and they should be covered. It is criminal, in my opinion, that they aren't covered. Um, and they are put in the same category right now as, you know, medications for hair loss um, and erectile dysfunction. This is a reflection of our healthcare system being based on a disease model versus thinking about preventative measures for weight health. And so we are having that conversation at a policy level as well, so that we can make sure that everyone can have access to support and care that they need. Something I think about a lot that I'd love to get your take on is whether you worry about people out there who might see medications as a quick fix for something that can be so complex and so individual. There are no quick fixes. Even these medications, ultimately, they don't replace lifestyle intervention. And I think the focus that we want is to acknowledge the chronic condition so that we can change the bias in the conversation for what is ultimately a very lonely experience for many. I'd like to ask you a question from one of our editors on the show, if I can. She is someone who has used Weight Watchers successfully at times, less successfully at others, to try and maintain a healthy weight and to feel good about herself. And one thing she told me that she has noticed in Weight Watchers social communities since the announcement that you all were going to start offering and allowing folks to have access and helping them get access to these medications is that among some people... There's this sense of betrayal at the company's embrace of these drugs. What do you say to those customers? So um, I understand that, Uh, you know, change is hard. And we've, uh, you know, all been a part of the culture and and that narrative. Um, But what I have, um, what I have shared to our team and to our members is that what makes Weight Watchers unique is that so many of us choose to be here because we believe in the mission um, and we believe in the power of community-driven health. And so that has to come with an unwavering commitment to radical candor. That was Weight Watchers CEO Seema Sistani. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. 
This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on Marketplace, mortgage rates have declined over the last few weeks. They're still higher than they were two years ago. But could this dip be enough to encourage would-be buyers back to the market? We'll have mostly clear skies tonight, lows in the upper 30s. Tomorrow will be mostly sunny with temps in the upper 40s. Sunday, mid-50s under cloudy skies. Showers could move in by afternoon. Then rain and more rain for Monday. It'll be warm for December, about 60 degrees. It's 6.30. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com. <laughs> 